Please do join me once again in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 23. As we turn to God's Word as our rule, as our guide, let us turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we have just sung, you do move in a mysterious way. And yet the mystery that was once hidden has now been revealed. How you are gathering all things together and remaking all things in Christ. Father, we thank you so much for unblinding our blind eyes, unstopping our deaf ears to see and to hear the good news of the truth of Jesus Christ. Would you be pleased now, Father, to continue to sharpen our vision and give us discerning hearing of your word. May you indeed interpret your own word for us and make it plain, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are here in week 61, looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission and exposition of the book of Acts. We are in the home stretch, as it were. I figured it out. We're at like 82%, four-fifths of the way through the book. We're on the, on the road now to Rome, to the end of the earth the gospel will go. Paul, when he writes to the church in Rome, in Romans 15, says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Through the endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So, you can all rest assured right off at the beginning that God's Word is for us today to encourage us, to strengthen us, to persevere, to make it to the end, to be sure God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us, to be with us, to finish what he has begun, but he uses means. And here before us are the means of his word as his spirit gives us understanding and the ability to put it into practice. So I hope you saw the title, The Plot Thickens. The Plot Thickens. Where did that expression come from? Well, the earliest use of that expression is found in a 17th century English play. And the common understanding of that expression, the plot thickens, is when a situation or a series of events is getting more and more complicated and mysterious. Now, I want you to think about that, but let's first think about plot. Definition number one. In a literary work, a film, or story, or other narrative, the plot is the sequence of events where each affects the next one through the principle of cause and effect. It's the storyline. It's the plot line. It's what happens, and then this happens, and then that happens. It's the story going somewhere, the plot of the story. But, you know, in English, and our friends who speak other languages, it drives them nuts, right? When you say plot, does it mean that, or does it mean a secret plan or a scheme to accomplish some purpose, especially a hostile, unlawful, or evil purpose. Well, today in our text before us, we'll see a plot as in a secret plan. 
as a major component of the plot of the narrative of Acts as Paul makes his way now from Jerusalem to Rome. Where were we last week? Let's take a brief look. Trusting God in the trials. Remember, we saw and asked the question, what does trusting God look like? Well, we saw that for Paul, it looked like exercising his rights as a Roman citizen before the tribune. And trusting God looked like fulfilling his responsibility as the Lord's servant before the Sanhedrin, the council. We saw that Paul was encouraged by the Lord Jesus Christ who came to him and stood by him. And we remarked toward the end last week that Jesus didn't exercise his rights as the son of God in order to fulfill his responsibility to save us. Jesus, in other words, denied himself in order to rescue us. When life gets hard and difficult and you don't see a way out, just think about Jesus not exercising his rights in order to fulfill his responsibility to save you, to save me. Indeed, trusting God in the trials then and now means walking with Jesus in the trials. And where we left off last week is where we'll begin this week with a word of encouragement. Look with me at verse 11 of chapter 23. Paul has been brought back into the barracks, rescued again from the crowd by the Romans. And we read in verse 11, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus encouraged Paul for telling the truth. For telling the truth about what he had seen and what he had heard testifying to the facts. And remember, we can all have our own opinions, but we cannot have our own facts. There are no alternative facts. There are the facts. And this word of encouragement is needed for Paul to have continued and indeed increased in confidence. And remember what Paul's calling and his mission was back in Acts 20, 24. What is it? to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of the grace of God. That's Paul's purpose. That's his calling. That's his mission. And we will see today this promise of God that he will indeed testify in Rome. He, will, he, will, he must get there. We will see that that promise is kept through the providence of God. And so what we will see throughout our text highlighted today is divine providence. If you read it closely, and I hope you did prior to coming today, you may have noticed that God is absent, so to speak, in our narrative. There's no direct reference. And yet recall a few weeks ago when we looked at Acts chapter 19 verses 23 through 41, we saw that God alone protects his people. God's name was not mentioned in that passage either. But the fingerprints of God were everywhere. In the complaint of the craftsman, in the confusion of the crowd, and significantly and primarily in the clear thinking of that unnamed town clerk. We read in our shorter catechism 
The answer to the question, how does God execute his decrees? He executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. And then a few questions later, it asks the question, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all his actions. Just a few minutes in our corporate confession of faith, we're going to be using a couple of questions and answers from the Heidelberg Catechism that deal with this same subject, providence. If you remember just a few months ago in February, Table Talk's theme was providence. And in the introductory editorial, the editor has a great definition. And he says this, God's providence is the active outworking of God's sovereignty in everything. And that's what we'll see here in particular today. That's what's in our text. Divine sovereignty, preserving and governing through providence. Well, we're going to unpack and explore Luke's narrative account by examining several aspects of the plot to kill Paul. Now, remember, Luke is a masterful storyteller. He's recounting historical events for theological purposes. He's writing an an orderly account for certainty so that his patron, Theophilus, the one he's writing to, will know for sure the truth about Jesus from the gospel, according to Luke, and hear the the ministry of the Holy Spirit through Acts. And so in our time together, we will see the plot hatched, uncovered, and foiled. The plot hatched, the plot uncovered, and the plot foiled. First, the plot hatched. Join with me as I read verses 12 through 15. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priest and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, who hatches the plot? The zealots, this group of more than 40 men who take an oath. They're going to fast until they can kill Paul. Now, remember, the, the Jews from Asia have been frustrated in their attempts to take care of Paul, to, to in one way, lynch him. The Sanhedrin, the council of Jewish leadership, is unable to convict him. And so now, direct action is planned. But these plotters, these zealots, are not alone. No, they have co-conspirators. They go to the chief priest and the elders, the Sadducees of the Sanhedrin. Now remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees differed over the resurrection They didn't go to the Pharisees because they saw that Paul and the Pharisees were aligned on the resurrection. So they went to those who were already against the resurrection in particular. They co-conspired. And notice the plan. It wasn't an honest plan. It was a pretext, right? They were going to lie in wait, in ambush, and their whole plan was a lie. 
Now, does this sound familiar? This plot against Paul? This deliberate, direct action, premeditated, planned? We heard in our New Testament reading at the end of, or in Luke 6, 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Paul is following Jesus. He's being persecuted like Jesus was being persecuted. Now, in Matthew and Mark's account of this same healing of the man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath, it doesn't just say that they discussed what they might do with Jesus. Listen to this language. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Destroy him. Isn't it interesting that the leadership of the Jews found Jesus to be an opponent, to find Jesus as an enemy? Whatever Jesus was teaching, whatever he was preaching, whatever he was demonstrating through his life was a threat. And in John 15, Jesus tells his disciples, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Even though Paul wasn't there at that time, nonetheless, he had met the risen Lord Jesus and he's following in the steps of Jesus. Now, with these men who are conspiring, plotting to take oaths, and interestingly, if you look at the historical literature around this time, you find out and in the, some Jewish extra-biblical writing, you find out that there was a way out of this oath. If they weren't, um, they called down a divine curse unless they killed Paul. But, you know, if they actually did, weren't able to do it, they didn't have to kill themselves after all. It's an interesting plot, a curse, an oath that they take. You see, these men, Paul would describe as people who have zeal without Knowledge. Turn with me to Romans 10. Romans 10. Paul, his heart is even toward those who are trying to kill him. Listen to this. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is for the Jewish nation, is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's interesting that this is an extreme case of zeal, not just in thoughts, not just in words, but with planned deeds. Now, we are to have a zeal for God. We are to have a zeal for righteousness and holiness and the Lord. But balance is needed. Because you can be zealous for truth and not zealous for love. Oh, you can love God, but sort of hate your neighbor. But Jesus brings together both truth and love. And so our zealousness has to be balanced for both truth and love. It's been pointed out by many that the fruit of the Spirit is fruit. Singular. 
not fruits, so that love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control all grow together. Now, you may some, know someone who, who, who is incredibly self-controlled, but there is no joy. They are zealous for discipline and self-control, but there is no peace and no patience. There may be um, uh, some aspect of their life that they are zealous for, but there's no love. And commentators have pointed out that the fruit grows together. To be sure, we all have strong areas and areas where we are gifted, and that is great. But we are to be zealous for truth and love. We are to be zealous for, as it were, all the fruit of the Spirit to be displayed in our life. Because that's zeal with knowledge. Not what Paul is facing, a zeal without knowledge. Things are not looking good for Paul. But as the plot line of the story continues, there will be twists and turns For the plot to kill Paul will be discovered, it will be exposed, it will be uncovered. Join with me now as we take a look at the plot uncovered, verses 16 through 22. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went out and he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell you. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. That's an interesting scene, isn't it? Uh, I'd like to see that... uh, in a play, the dialogue, the, the scenery, how the, the tribune, uh, how, the, how the centurion um, hears from Paul and, and takes that word, that boy, um, to the tribune. It's an interesting scene. But what we see right here in this unmasking of the plot is a silent witness to God's providential ruling and overruling. You see, Paul's escape from the 40 would-be assassins is not a record of a series of fortunate coincidences, but rather an account of God's providential control of the circumstances of history so as to work out his own purposes. The plot has been unmasked, and we, we, um, we get the sense, even if we haven't read further, that the tribune takes this seriously, and he's going to take action. Before we move on, just remember the truth of God's word, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it, well, wherever he will. The first verse of Proverbs 21. And toward the end of Proverbs 21, we read this. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. 
For indeed, as Paul writes to the Ephesian church, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And he writes to the Roman church, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now let's take a a look here at the people involved in the purposes of God. They all play an essential role. Think about this courageous nephew. Do you know how much else we know about Paul's family? That, That he had a sister in Jerusalem? That she had a son? Nothing. It's mysterious. But God has been pleased to include this fact in his word. He's courageous. How does he hear of the ambush? We we don't know. It's not going to be the intervention of an angel like we saw in chapter 12 to protect the apostles. No, it's this young boy, this probably teenager, late teenager. uh, Some don't know his age, but this young boy. We see a determined Apostle Paul called the prisoner, and indeed that's what he's going to be from here on out, the prisoner. He's responding to these unfolding events in view of the promise that he's received, the encouragement he's received, because he knows that he must get to Rome. He knows he can take action. His nephew tells him, he realizes somebody else, the Romans need to know about this. Paul is not so much interested in protecting his own life. He's interested in seeing the purposes of God fulfilled in his life, the gospel going forward. So we see the nephew and we see Paul, but we see a compliant centurion. Again, Paul's Roman citizenship, respect. He's probably, the centurion probably thinks he's sort of inferior to Paul. And he he does what Paul asks him. He brings him to the tribune and the tribune, is discerning. The tribune has wisdom. The tribune is going to, as it were, do the right thing. You see, in the midst of these people playing an essential role, you see the miscalculation of the plotters. Somebody spoke. Somebody let it slip. You see the, the nephew having to have courage to go visit Paul in the, in the, uh, where he was in custody. Not unusual. Family and friends could bring food and, and visits to prisoners. We see the commander, the tribune, has to make a wise choice. So here, as this persecution through this plot is unfolding, we have to see that Paul has courage and others involved have wisdom to respond well to persecution. Because here is a scheme of man coming up against Paul. And we read in Matthew some of Jesus' instructions. Beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 10. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who will speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Wise, innocent, 
discerning, courageous. One commentator looks back on verse 11 and sees that as explaining Paul's attitude and conduct throughout the rest of Acts. And F.F. Bruce says this, this assurance that Paul got from the Lord Jesus meant so much to Paul during the delays and anxieties of the next two years and goes far to account for the calm and dignified bearing which seemed to mark him out as a master of events rather than as their victim. And so in Paul's response, calm, deliberate, purposeful, he sets in motion just another step in this unfolding of events that's going to lead to his rescue and lead to him getting to Rome. So once the plot is uncovered, we see now action will be taken to stop it and protect Paul. The plot is foiled. Let's uh, pick up reading in verse 23. And I'll go ahead and read through the end of the chapter. Then he, that's the tribune, called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So a plan to protect Paul is made. Roman precautions are taken. The tribune recognizes the seriousness of the threat and also the importance of the prisoner. Because he knows that if Paul continues to stay in Jerusalem, he's going to be a source of continued disturbance. And he knows that he's going to have trouble keeping order if Paul is still there. And he writes a letter to go along with the troops that he sends to Felix, the governor of the province of Judea. And if you listen carefully to the letter, uh, the Tribune uh, does a little bit of shading and twisting of the truth. He, he uh, streamlines the truth. He puts himself in, in the best light. So even though this is a man of order and discipline and adherence to law and seemingly truth and justice, nonetheless, he's, he's presenting himself in, in the best light, kind of a human touch that Luke captures there. 
So a plan to protect Paul is made. And then a plan to protect Paul is carried out. Uh, Not only are precautions taken, but protection is given. And we read in terms of geography that over halfway between Jerusalem and Caesarea is Antipatris. And all the troops, as it were, stop there and the infantry goes back to Jerusalem and Paul continues with the Calvary to Caesarea, the the capital of the province of Judea. Paul has left Jerusalem. He's on the way to Rome. Here's the refusal of Jerusalem to receive the message of the gospel. And, And here we see the continued intent not only to reject the message of the gospel found in Jesus, but to reject and destroy the messengers. Once again, who does God use to protect Paul? Who does he use? He uses the Romans. Notice the contrast. Can you call it irony? If it is, it's incredibly sad. The Jewish or the persecutors and the prejudiced and the violent. And this is not an invitation to anti-Semitism. This is the unbelieving Jews. They're prejudiced, they're violent, and they're bent on persecution. And yet, in contrast, the Romans, they're open-minded, as it were, and they went out of their way to maintain law and justice and order, as we've seen. Now, in terms of the the king's heart in the hand of the Lord, the might of Roman legions, the might of Rome's army, well over half of the troops in Jerusalem are used to escort safely Paul away from Jerusalem and toward Rome. Here is this human gathering of power to protect one witness to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, a a silent but powerful testimony as to who really is Lord, not only in heaven, but on earth. You know, I've often heard that expression, you know, the Lord will move mountains to do this, you know, whether that's accurate or not, I don't know, but it's a good expression that meaning No effort will be spared. Look what happens to Paul. He's protected by a pagan, worldly government. My friends, it's easy and tempting to be discouraged about what's going on in our world. But as the great hymn, This Is My Father's World, reminds us, he is the ruler yet. And though the wrong seemed all so strong, he is the ruler yet. So we need to conclude with a brief word about courage, confidence, and rest. So when the plot thickens in our lives, where do we find courage? Where do you find courage? Where do you find strength? Where do you find the energy to get up in the morning and face the difficulty of the day? Where do you get it? 
Do you, do you look inside you for that? Well, we see that here for Paul, the courage is found in his confidence in the truth. His confidence in the one who is truth. Paul was aware that the Romans had no case against him. He had not violated Roman law in the least. And he was also aware that the Jews had no case against him either. Why? Because his faith was the faith of his fathers, and the gospel was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Because any faithful Jew would end up at Jesus is the Messiah. Above all, Paul knew that his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was with him and would keep his promises. Paul's mission, remember, was this to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. But not only was that his mission, my friends, that was his motivation. In order to testify to the grace of the gospel of God, Paul himself had to believe it, had to live out the truth of that, finding a righteousness not in himself, but in another, who lived for him, who died for him, who was raised from the dead and who has promised to be with him and has promised to return and bring him home. His mission was also his motivation. And so my friends, here at Grace and Peace, we are called to what? Proclaim the gospel, to announce good news. What's gonna motivate us to do that day in, day out in the rejection that we're gonna get in the laughing at best, hostility at worst, it's going to be the gospel itself. It provides its own motivation. And we've got to be prepared that the most hostility is not really going to come from the pagan, unbelieving world, although it will. Oftentimes the hostility comes from the most religious aspects of our society who have yet to embrace Jesus Christ. So when the plot of our lives thicken, where do we find courage? And secondly, remember when the plot of our lives thicken, when they get complex and difficult and have twists and turns, what do we do? We continue to rest in Jesus. We rest in his presence as Paul did. We rest in his promises as Paul and every believer does. We rest in his power, in his provision, in his protection. You see, Jesus has called us once and he continues to call us to come to him and to find rest in him. Isaiah the prophet communicates this to God's people. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. May God be pleased to cause all of us to return to Jesus when we drift away. And may God be pleased to enable all of us to find our rest in him being strengthened, not by what's in us inherently, but being strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus.
May our trust now and forever be in him. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Luke, the physician, Luke, the historian, Luke, the theologian. We thank you, Father, that he has indeed put together an orderly account so that his readers may have certainty. And Father, we acknowledge that we can't achieve certainty apart from you speaking to us through your word and by your spirit. And so, Father, would you be pleased to comfort your gathered people? Would you give us confidence and courage in Christ? May we indeed see your providential rule over not only our lives individually, but over the entire world. Father, help us in doing so to rest in you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.